The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. We have a lot to do. Uh, We just have two weeks left in this evangelism class, and therefore that means we have two weeks to evangelize the world. That's scary, all right? But uh, God is faithful, right? No, that's not true. This is just our course uh, in evangelism, and we're going to finish looking at the gospel this week, and and, uh, uh, next week we're going to uh, talk about special issues concerning evangelism, things that people face. Uh, dealing with evolution, dealing with uh, fear in, in witnessing, how to get into some gospel conversations. Um, uh, we'll be doing some other things. So that'll be next week, and that'll that'll be it uh, on our evangelism class. And then we'll begin our Summer Acts uh, series, which we're looking forward to. So uh, we've got two sheets to get through, uh, week seven and week eight. And so what I've done is I've given you my copy, which is the copy where all the blanks are filled in. What that enables me to do is skip around as much as I want, all right? You can, you can just take it home and read it and all that. And, and when, when I feel like we need to move on to the next sheet, we'll just do that, okay? So let's, uh, let's approach it that way. Take your first sheet. That's week seven, uh, part four, the evangelistic response. Also, if you have this yellow sheet, which is the outline, let's go over that first because uh, I think repetition is essential to good teaching. Um, it's very important to uh, just keep this thing in front of us. Uh, we've had a cumulative knowledge here of the, of the gospel outline that I'm presenting. Again, you do not need to use this outline. You know that, don't you? I'm just saying that in your witnessing, if you do the job faithfully, you're going to be saying some things about God, I would hope. You're going to be saying some things about man and his need and sin, I would hope. You're going to be saying some things about Christ, or you're not preaching the gospel, all right? And you're going to be urging people to make a response, right? So to me, whether you buy what we've got or the subdivisions or the supporting scriptures, that God-man-Christ response four-part outline is good to keep in your mind uh, so that you know generally what you're going to try to say and how you're going to try to share. And realize you are uh, messengers of the good news. You are bringing information and bringing things to people that they perhaps haven't heard or haven't thought about in a while or they're bringing, you're bringing them to them in a way that they, that they have to deal with afresh. And so you are messengers of the good news. And so therefore it is reasonable for you to have content to share. It's reasonable for you to uh, have some things that you need to say about each of these topics. Let's look at the outline again. First, God. Uh, we're focusing on God's roles uh, consciously, we started with God as creator. It's the best place to start. You can, you can use that with anybody on the face of the earth because it fits into God's wisdom in creating the physical world as a testimony to his existence and his nature. God is creator. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We supported that with God's love and the uh, testimony in Acts 14.17. He has not left himself without a testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. These are things God does to declare his presence to us. And you can use that with anybody, anytime. Look at the goodness of God. Look what he has done. He has sustained you and he has cared for you every day of your life. Even if you don't know him, he has. And so it's such a beautiful thing. God is creator and therefore we see the love of God. Secondly, because God is creator, he has the right to rule over what he has made. God is king. And this is so important because what we are urging people to do is enter the kingdom of God, right? So therefore, we should be proclaiming that he is king right up front. Do you think that the average non-Christian thinks of the kingship of God? Are they thinking of God as king as they go about their lives? They don't give him a thought at all. And what an odd thing it is to be living in God's universe and not give him a single thought. Uh, God is king, and so we have to establish that from the beginning. This is a verse that could do it. You could find others. Psalm 47, 7, For God is king of all the earth. Sing to him a psalm of praise. Uh, because God is king, he is sovereign, he rules over all things, he's established his throne, and as a king, he has the right to make laws. The Ten Commandments and the Two Commandments are good to establish. You could say, well, we don't have to do these now. That's true. But understand that God established these things, these laws, uh, as, as a timeless principle for us, uh, an expression of his moral nature and that to which we are being saved. 
the Ten Commandments and the Two Great Commandments. Uh, these Ten Commandments, it would be good, as I said, for you to memorize an outline of the Ten Commandments like this. This is a good one. This is not complete. You know that. If you read uh, Exodus 20, you're going to get a lot more words than this. But these are the basic concepts. Uh, commandment number one, you shall have no other gods. I'm the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods. Secondly, you shall not make <clears throat> or worship any idols. Thirdly, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Fourth, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Do all your work in six days and rest on the seventh. For God made heaven and earth in six days and rest on the seventh. Or just remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. That's enough. All right. Number five, honor your father and mother. Number six, you shall not murder. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Number eight, you shall not steal. Number nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And number 10, you shall not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. And secondly, God uh, summarized these, or Christ summarized all of the laws of God in two great commandments. Commandment number one, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And number two, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The Ten Commandments plus the Two Commandments, that's how God has set up his uh, universe. He is a lawmaker. Uh, thirdly, the role of God is that he is judge. Not only is he, he creator and not only is he king, but he is also a judge. We will stand before God and give him an account. He is the judge of all the earth. Psalm 96, 13, it says, The Lord comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness. And therefore, God is holy. Habakkuk 1, 13. His eyes are too pure to look on evil. He cannot tolerate wrong. Now, from the very beginning, therefore, we are God-centered in our evangelism. We are proclaiming what God is like. We're telling people who he is. We're proclaiming that he is creator, he is king, uh, he's a lawgiver, he is the judge. That's who he is. Secondly, in the man section, uh, we linked each of the sections about man back to what we've already learned about God. Uh, man is created by God the creator. We are created in his image. Uh, Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We are created to be like God. We are created to know him and serve him and love him. We are created for a relationship with God. That is so important for us to, to know and to communicate. Secondly, we're, we want to say that man is rebellious against God the king. Uh, we are rebellious against God's commands. We are universally rebellious uh, Romans 3, 10 through 12, it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. And by the way, I know Romans 3, 23 is easier to memorize for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But Romans 3, 10 through 12 is a little more poignant, very directed. There is no one righteous, not even one. No one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Boy, I'll tell you, I don't, that's a filter that catches everybody, isn't it? I mean, there's just no, nowhere to hide in Romans 3, 10 through 12. Very, very clear and specific. We are universally rebellious against God's laws. We have rebelled against God's laws. Now, it is so important for you to gain the skill of taking the Ten Commandments and the Two Commandments and applying them to people's lives in a very potent way. In other words, you could look at the Ten Commandments and just say, as you're sharing with somebody, you say, as you look at these Ten Commandments, would you say that you perfectly obeyed them? You know? Uh, talk about, uh, you know, in Romans 7, Paul talks about the law of coveting. That's a very good one because that's a heart sin, isn't it? All right, coveting is just yearning and desiring something that it hasn't been given to you. <laughs> uh, you've been doing that a long time since like you were a little, little kid, right? Wanting, wanting a toy or a cookie or something, you know, from the very beginning, there's been a yearning for something that wasn't yours. So coveting is a very good one. Zero in on that one and use it. Or you can use, as I've said before, Jesus' commentary, on the um, Ten Commandments in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it was said, you shall not murder. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with his brother is in danger of the fire of hell. So you could say, well, that's, you know, how could that be? That anger jeopardizes your soul in hell, that, that you deserve to go to hell if you're just angry. Well, just we have to understand just how pure and perfect God is. He doesn't permit anything to defile. It's, it's a sin. And so even if you don't actually go on and murder somebody, the anger is the root of the murder, as Jesus taught. And uh, the same thing with adultery. You know, we just have to have the skill of taking the law and applying it to people so that they get to the point where they recognize, woe is me. You know, I'm a sinner. The two great commandments. Have you loved God with everything in your life? Have you, have you yearned for him, desire to please him? Have you loved him? Do you cherish God? And have you loved your neighbor as yourself? Uh, you could use uh, the, the uh, parable of the Good Samaritan. Remember how Jesus talked about that and the, and the man trying to justify himself 
By the way, people have been trying to justify themselves forever, okay? Tried to justify himself, said, who is my neighbor? Jesus' answer is anybody in need. Anybody you cross in your life and they have need, that person's your neighbor. Susan. With the rich young ruler, when the man wouldn't sell everything he had and give it to poor, Jesus mm-hmm. essentially was showing him he wasn't loving his neighbor as himself. Right? Perhaps, or that he was an idolater, okay. that he cared more about his wealth than about going to heaven. I mean, think about it. Remember what Jesus said. If you wish to be perfect, sell all that you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. People forget there was more than just to sell everything. There's a bunch of things. Jesus gave him a command. He gave him a promise. He gave him everything. And he walked away anyway. You see that? And, and he, only, he only gave him words. But to us, Jesus' words are everything, right? He's writing an, an IOU, in effect, as, as the God of all the universe and saying, here, you can cash this, at, or a check. You can cash this at any bank, all right? Basically, he's saying, you will have treasure in heaven if you'll just believe my words, you know? But he wouldn't do it. So he, he basically exposed the man's heart that he was an idolater and he was not loving to his neighbor. And by the way, that's a very good question that you asked, Susan, because the question we have to ask as evangelists, are you willing to do that to somebody's heart? Are you willing to stop right here in the man section and work until they just almost walk away sad? They're not, not willing to face their own sin. That makes evangelism difficult, but it isn't meant to be a sweet experience in every case. As a matter of fact, in most cases, it won't. Remember that Jesus said, wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. I don't know how to assign percentages to many and only a few. The mathematically inclined among you, you can tell us. Well, that's got to be 10 and 90, okay? Or 5 and 95. I can't do it. All I know is that many and few is pretty clear. We're not going to be out there and every person we talk to is going to come to faith in Christ. So we have to be willing to go through painful experiences in evangelism. At any rate, uh, we've got to do this law work. And then finally, we've got to make it clear that man is under judgment by God the judge. It really is turn or burn, even though we might not use that expression. It really is repent or perish, as Jesus said. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. We have to make that clear. And it's very unpleasant, but there it is. Matthew 12, 36. I tell you that man will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word that they have spoken. And uh, Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. It's very, cl- it's very important that we make clear what death it is we're talking about. We're not talking about the first death. I actually talked... Uh, to a Muslim man, we, I mentioned to him to you a week ago on the plane, and we talked at great length about the difference between the first and the second death in Christian theology. He was a non-Christian. I was witnessing to him, and I was talking about what the second death is. And it's important because they say, well, Christians die. I mean, if Jesus saves, saves you from the wages of sin, you know, his death, and he saves you, well, what, what is that? Say, well, uh, that, that death he doesn't save us from. That's the final enemy. We're going to die. We will all uh, we will not all sleep, we will all be changed, it's true, but it is appointed unto man to die once and after that face judgment. And so it's important that we describe what the second death would be like in eternal torment in hell. Uh, that's the second section. So we've talked about God. God is creator, he is king, he's lawgiver, he is judge. We talked about man. Man is created by God the creator, he's rebellious against God the king, and he's under judgment by God the judge. You see the parallelism? You just have to learn to support it with the scripture verses. Let's go to the third section, which we discussed last time, the Christ section. Uh, God's fourth title is Savior. Jesus has come to be the Savior. Isaiah 33:22. the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, and it is he who will save us. He is our Savior. And that's the title of God that we embrace. Save from what? Well, Matthew 121, you'll give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. It's a salvation from sin, from its judgment, etc. We talked last week about what we need to say about Jesus, his supernatural life. He is the God-man. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And verse 14, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have Uh, beheld his glory, etc. So he is the God-man. Secondly, he lived a miraculous life. Uh, Matthew 11, 5, go back and report to John what you see and hear. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. That's just a quick list. It's the best, most compact list of Jesus' miracles you'll find anywhere. Uh, It's out of Jesus' own mouth as he was speaking to John the Baptist's messengers. Yes, Susan? The wages of sin is death. Is that because God Yes. Yes, and it's a it's a good point in your question. I like in my witnessing, if I have the time, to link sin and death back at the garden at the tree. Do not eat from that tree, for when you eat it, you will die. And that's the death penalty. And I really love to talk about the death penalty. 
not so much just death, but it's important to talk about the death penalty. Don't misunderstand this really low, but I just think it's important. Why? Because a penalty can be transferred to a substitute. That's the core of our faith. The death penalty can be paid by a substitute. That's what the whole sacrificial system teaches. The death penalty can be paid by someone else. And thank God for it, because apart from that, we are all lost. We are all condemned. But uh, the wages of sin is death. I, I really like to say that is a death penalty. It's what we deserve for our sin. But we will not get. Thanks be to God, because Jesus paid that penalty for us. So, good question. All right. Miraculous life. And then, uh, uh, thirdly, he was sinless. First Peter 2.22. He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Uh, Jesus was sinless. These are three basic things you want to get across about Jesus. Who he was. He was divine. He was human. God-man. Secondly, his miracles. And thirdly, his sinless life. Then you want to talk, obviously, about Jesus' substitutionary death. The word substitutionary is a big word, but what it means is that he stood in our place. He took our guilt on himself. He gives us uh, his righteousness. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds we are healed. All right, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, you can put a star next to that in your outline. That may be one of the most important verses to memorize. That talks about the exchange that is our only hope. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That exchange is everything. I mentioned to you last week, it is under attack right now with this new perspective of Paul. We're not going to let it be under attack. We have to stand firm and say that exchange is everything. We must have Christ's righteousness on judgment day or we will not survive. And so there is that exchange. All right. And then we talk about Christ's saving resurrection. We need to mention it. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 5. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised from the uh, dead on the third day according to the scriptures, and uh, that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. The resurrection is our hope. Christ has come to give us life after death. That is the, the uh, appeal and the attraction to people of every tribe and language and people and nation. Who can defeat death? All of them have experienced it. And we will all experience it. It's incredibly relevant. And so, therefore, Jesus came to destroy death. He is the death conqueror, and he did it by his resurrection. And what does he come to give us? Well, he comes to give us total forgiveness of sins. Ephesians 1.7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Isn't that wonderful? And you can talk as much as you want. Talk about the fact that, that God has kept a careful and accurate record of every, every word you've ever, ever said, every thought, every deed, everything. It's all been recorded. And for him to just blot it out or cover it with the blood of Christ is an unspeakably valuable thing for you and me. The uh, forgiveness of sins and eternal life. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God or the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the Christ section. God, man, Christ. Now we get to the response. So take week seven, part four of the evangelistic outline, the response section. And we are going to go quickly through this. All right, the second key question. The first question, remember in our outline, is um, how can a sinner like us, how can sinners like us be in the presence of a holy God where he permits no sin? That's a big question. That's what links from the man section into Christ. The answer is through Jesus Christ, through his work, we, we can stand before God. But now comes this key question, which was asked by the Philippian jailer. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? That's an incredibly important question. And uh, you know that God has been at work in their hearts uh, if they come to that point where in one way or another they ask you that. Okay, What must I do to be saved? That, that's something that must be working inside them or, or they're not ready. They, they've got to feel inside themselves a need to be saved. And if they don't, they will not call on the name of the Lord and be saved. So that's the work of the evangelist. It, uh, with the, obviously with the work of the Holy Spirit to bring them to that point. So the gospel message calls for a response. It is not merely interesting information. Oh, that's very interesting. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? I remember sharing uh, evidence for the resurrection of Christ, apologetic material that I thought was just absolutely phenomenal. I thought, boy, I can't wait to go try this. Evidence for the resurrection. So I went and found a guy at the workplace where I worked and I shared with him and I thought I did a great job explaining how I went through all the options and what could have happened to the body of Christ and I got done and I said, what do you think? And he said, well, seems like Jesus rose from the dead. 
Well, but I, don't, I didn't sense he was converted at all. He was just, it was just information. I guess it was like a puzzle or whatever. I guess you fill in. Jesus rose from the dead. Is that the right answer? There was nothing there. He was still dead in his transgressions and sins. This isn't merely interesting information. There has to be a sense of what must I do to be saved? Just like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, putting his fingers in his ears and running, crying out, life, life, eternal life. There's that sense. By the way, I used that illustration with a non-Christian once and they, they moved over into Wizard of Oz. Do I have to click my heels together and say, home, there's no place like home. So I said, I'll never use that again. All right, but you've read it and at least you're sympathetic to the imagery of somebody sticking their fingers in their ears and running and yelling life, life, eternal life. You don't actually need to do that to be saved. Okay, you know that. But uh, what we are saying is there needs to be a sense of urgency. What do you think that Philippian jailer was feeling when he pulled them out in the middle of the night, Paul and Silas, and said, asked that question? Realize he had almost attempted suicide. He had, he had just about fallen on his sword. And we believe if he had done that in the state he was in at that moment, he would have gone to hell. I can imagine that adrenaline was in his blood stream and that he was shaking and all that, and there was an intensity to the question. Now, not everybody's going to be like that, but there needs to be a sense, what must I do to be saved? They're going to ask that question. All right, we have to look at it and say, what must they do and what must they not do? These are the two things, the way I've divided the outline at this point. There are some things they must do, and there are some things they must not do in that present state, okay? All right, first, what must they do? Well, the answer to the question is as simple as Jesus' first preached message in Mark's gospel, Mark 1.15. All right, Mark 1.15 is very powerful. This is Jesus' answer to the Philippian jailer's question. All right, what must I do to be saved? Well, Jesus said in Mark 1.15, the time has come, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. All right, what did, how did Jesus answer the Philippian jailer's question? What must you do to be saved? Repent and believe. Those are the two things. All right, now, why do I focus on... on um, Mark 115. Why don't I just give, let's say, Paul and Silas's answer at this point? Paul and Silas gave an answer and it's fine. Well, how did Paul and Silas answer the question? What must I do to be saved? What did they say? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. There's nothing wrong with that. But I think Jesus's statement is more precise. All right. Why? What, is, what does Jesus say in answer to answering the question? What does Jesus say? There are two things he says. Go ahead. Well, Okay, repent and believe. Now, how do the two relate? What, first of all, what is repentance? What do we mean by that? A change of mind resulting in change of heart and a change of direction. That's beautiful. Uh, a lot of times evangelists use the illustration of a U-turn. You know, you're driving the wrong way. And uh, I, I don't know about you, but when I'm driving on a long trip, and I make a wrong turn, get on the wrong highway or something like that, and I discover it. Have you ever been in that situation? And it's like miles before the next exit? Oh, is that frustrating me. I almost want to jump the median strip. You know what I'm saying? I just don't want to wait. Next exit, 16 miles, you know, that kind of thing. And it's just, oh, my goodness, because I know every mile I'm traveling, I'm going to have to travel back the other way. And that's what happens. There's a realization that comes in someone's mind, I'm going the wrong way. I'm heading to hell. And so they've got to turn, as Landis said, to turning away inside their heart from, uh, from sin. And it isn't just from sins. It's from sin. It's from that whole principle of rebellion against God. There's, there's a whole turning. Now, so often we just say you just have to believe in Jesus. All right? What is the problem with belief without repentance? Think about that. People think they can just keep living like they are. Exactly. They can hold on to their pet sins and add Jesus too, you see. That's Jesus as life enhancer. He makes everything go well. You know what I'm saying? No, Jesus isn't going to be anybody's life enhancer, not apart from repentance, not in this way, you see. Obviously, he enhances our life to eternity, he does. But that's not what we're saying. Go ahead. I think it relates back a lot to the verse earlier. It dealt with Matthew 1.21. He would give the name of Jesus because he would save people from this. Not in, their not in their sins, but from their sins. And you know why? Because sin is devastating. It's poison. What kind of savior would come and say, well, I'll save you from the penalty of sin, but go on and keep sinning? That's not love. It isn't. It's, sin destroys what it touches. 
And, and that's the whole thing. People who think that they can be saved without turning away from a life of sin, they just don't understand the love of God, really. His desire is to save you out of sin so that you don't sin anymore. Now, he's got a wise way of doing that, and we've got the whole battle of sanctification, the struggle we have until he finally finishes the job. But he knows what he's doing. He really does. He has saved many people. Our brothers and sisters in Christ who have gone on before us and they're, in, uh, they're waiting for their resurrection bodies, they are free forever from the struggle. He's saved them, and he will finish saving them right to the uttermost. He knows how to save people. That's beautiful, isn't it? But here's the thing. He's not going to save you, as Landis put it, in your sin. He's going to save you from your sins. He's going to do that. And that's a beautiful thing. Repentance, therefore, must be a part of it. Now here, I, I believe, frankly, that believe in the Lord Jesus is enough. If, but if you have to, you have to understand what it means. Because faith, according to Hebrews, is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction uh, of things not seen. The word conviction means to be convicted by it to be reproved or rebuked in some way. That's what faith is. So faith basically is a vision into the invisible spiritual world of the way things really are. And if you could, as you are, be brought into the heavenly realms and see God and see the holy angels and, and the 24 elders and all of that, and you, what would you feel inside yourself? Would you not feel your own sinfulness? Would you not feel almost a, a, a rebuke of how unready and unfit you are to be there. Isaiah did, didn't he? Woe is me, I'm ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips. He felt dirty. And thank God that God has the power, the ability to cleanse us from our sins, to, to purify us from everything that defiles. But uh, there must be, therefore, I think true faith includes repentance. And therefore, I don't think Paul and Silas gave an incomplete answer. I think it is complete. But it's good to break it apart and say you must repent and believe. What do they have to believe? Believe the gospel. Believe the good news. What is the good news? Well, just what we've been talking about here, that there is a God. He's a creator, a king, a lawgiver. We're wicked. We're sinful. God sent his son into the world to be our atoning sacrifice. He died in our place. God raised him from the dead on the third day. And by faith in his name, we can have forgiveness of sins. That's the good news you have to believe. All right? Now, what we must do then is repent. That's a U-turn away from sin toward God. And we must believe the gospel. What must we not do? Well, look at the yellow page outline. First of all, you must not work for it. What do we mean by that? Well, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. You must not work for it. Why do you have to make that clear to somebody? Well, we live in a world where people tend to pay for things and you don't get anything for nothing. Mm -hmm. And people find it hard to believe that this could come as a gift rather than needing to pay for it in some way with good works. Yeah, it's very, very difficult to get people away from a sense that they need to pay for it. One of the illustrations I use when I witness um, is the illustration of a gift, an expensive gift that you would give to a friend. Imagine, for example, that you bought a gift, maybe an expensive, rare, antique piece of pottery from China, and it cost you $5,000. You think, what kind of friend would be worth that kind of gift? Well, you may not have one, and I might not have one, but there might be a friend out there worthy of that kind of a gift, or you would have those kind of resources. But imagine if you just saved up for months, if not years, to buy this expensive gift, and it was difficult to get it shipped over there. It's in one piece, and now the moment has come, and you present the gift. And suppose they look at the gift and say, oh, this is incredible. This is very valuable, isn't it? Yeah, it looks valuable. Anyway, uh, I, I can't accept such a value. Can I pay for it? Tell you what. And they pull out a fiver and give you a five. How would you feel at that moment? Jim, what's going on? What, what would you feel if they're handing you the fiver for this gift? <laughs> what does it do in the relationship? There's something that's happened there. They're cheapening the gift. I mean, in many ways. First of all, it's a, it, wouldn't the first thing you'd say to them be, it's a gift? I mean, aside from even if they offered you 5000 for it or even 6000 so you made a profit, okay? That's not really the point because the point is it was a gift. And you're really insulting me here by trying to pay me for a gift. That's an insult. You can't do it, all right, because it insults. It's meant to be a gift. It's just a free gift. You just have to accept it. You can't try to pay for it. But then let's get to the, rea the reality of it. 
what is it? What is the value of what God is offering you here? What, what price are you going to pay? What, what price would you set on this value? Full forgiveness of sins, the, the blood of the only begotten Son of God shed for you, the indwelling Spirit, adoption into the family of God, eternal life. I mean, on and on and on it goes. What price are you going to put on that? Secondly, if Jesus were not disposed to come down from heaven and die on the cross for you, do you think you could scrape up enough bucks to get him to do it? Think about it. Could you buy him? Could you buy him? Could you afford him? You can't afford him. I mean, you're offering a penny for a gift that costs billions or trillions. It's just you can't even know. You may not pay for it. And as a matter of fact, he has set this up so that you will not boast. So that when you are saved, you will be saved in such a way that all you can do is just thank God for his grace. You must not try to work for it or earn it. You must just accept it as a gift. Don't try to pay for it. There's a second thing you must not do. All right, what, go ahead and read it on that yellow outline. Read the, somebody read the, the verse there. You see it? Go ahead. No, wait for tomorrow. Okay, go ahead, read that. 2 Corinthians 6 2. 2 Corinthians 6 2. For he says, In the time of my favor I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. What is that verse saying? What do you get out of that verse? That gift was available to closes the box. Okay. So he's making it available to you when? Right now. Right now. You have a window of opportunity. Do you know for sure he might open it up for you again tomorrow? What's that? You don't know that you have it tomorrow. Yes. God's spirit will not always strive with you. That's right. That's right. One of the there's so many things that could happen. Even if that guy dies at age 80, this might be his best moment ever. This is the time. He feels it. He feels the pull, the attraction of Christ. If he hardens his heart against that, will he ever feel it again? I don't I can't say no. I can't say yes. I just don't know. This is too important to mess around with. And so there's another verse that I've mentioned so many times, Hebrews 3:15. Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Today is the day of salvation. That, that, that word today is in most translations capitalized. It's like a whole concept. It's a whole theology of today. I preached about it this past Sunday. It's the idea that you have now time. You don't have yesterday. It's gone. You have the cumulative effects of all your yesterdays and decisions you've made. But it's gone and you can do nothing about it. Nothing. You can't do anything about tomorrow, although the decisions you make today will affect tomorrow if God lets you live. You cut off your finger today, it's not going to be there tomorrow, okay? And that will affect the rest of your life, obviously. So I'm not saying that all you ever have is, obviously there's a continuum, but what I'm saying is the only thing you can affect is today, right now. If today you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Today is the day of salvation. And your job as the evangelist is not to leave them comfortable if they decide not to accept the gospel. Now, that is painful. I know I'm laying a burden on you. You think, well, that's kind of uncomfortable, isn't it? I mean, like if you're having a friendly conversation on the plane and it's all gone really well and you get to the point and say, well, would you like to accept Christ? And they say, no, I I really think I'm okay the way I am. Okay, now what's your job? Well, it's been good talking to you. I really enjoyed it. And, you know, we've had a kind of a comparative religion discussion here and it's been fun for me too. Listen, have a great time. All right? Is that your job? What do you think you ought to do? Tell them 2 Corinthians 6 2. Okay. <laughs> Today is the day of salvation. You don't know that you're going to be alive tomorrow. You might be dead. If you died tonight and you were called to account for your sins, would you have Christ as your, as your Savior? You say, well, now you're getting a little heavy on me. Oh, no. This is not a little heavy. This is infinitely heavy. I mean, you, you go ahead and be as heavy as you want to be. Okay, you say, I I want you to know I'm very greatly grieved about this with many other words. Acts chapter two, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. That's painful, isn't it? It's like you look kind of like a fanatic at that point. You know, (laughs) you're warning and pleading. Why would you do that? Because it's important. It's not easy to do, but that's what you know, you can't just let them be comfortable. You know, and I think there's different ways you can do it. One thing you can say is, all right, remember this. Jesus says uh, he blew on them in John 20. 
and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And then he said, if you forgive anyone their sins, what? They are forgiven. If you do not forgive their sins, what? They're not forgiven. Now, when did we get put in the place of God? Well, we're not in the place of God. We are God's messengers, right? Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Well, a literalistic translation of that in Matthew 18 is, whatever you bind on earth will be having been bound in heaven. That's literalistic translation of the participle. Whatever you loose on earth will be having been loosed in heaven. We're just messengers. And so what is our job then after we have shared the gospel, laid it all out, and we've called them to repentance and faith and they choose not to? What do you think would be an appropriate response at that moment? What should we tell them? Just restate what the consequences are as we understand them and um, make sure they are clear about the gravity of the decision. That's right. You know, I, I just think it's my responsibility as a messenger of the gospel to tell you that you're still in your sins. And if you die tonight, you'll die still in your sins. That's one way to say it. I remember John MacArthur in a, in a Q&A session, I've mentioned this before, uh, there was a guy who was asking a question and he had weird ideas and everybody was kind of weirding out. I don't know what group he was from, but it probably was from some kind of a cult. And uh, John MacArthur listened for a while and then he interrupted, asked a few questions. The guy got hostile, started saying some bad things back and it, it was very intense. And uh, after that exchange, John MacArthur said something I've never forgotten. He said, I would not be discharging my duty as a minister of the gospel if I did not tell you that I have great fear for your soul. Well, that's what we're talking about here. I wouldn't be discharging my duty as an evangelist if I didn't tell you I have great fear for your soul. Another approach would be this. Pray for them and say, I'm going to pray that you will not be able to sleep tonight because of the things we've talked about that you will realize your soul is so valuable to you that you will not be able to go to sleep until you come to Christ tonight. And they're like, okay, you go ahead and do that. <laughs> uh, at any rate, in any, in any case, it's just not right to leave them feeling okay and comfortable and good about rejecting Christ because it isn't. It's very serious. I mean, you realize how unusual it is that you would have that good an opportunity to go through all this with somebody. You may be their primary opportunity. Were you going to say something? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I would hope that we've already said that in the Christ section, but definitely we want to reiterate that. Thank you uh, for that. Now, what do you, what do you get? What, what do you receive uh, if you believe? Well, you receive eternal life. The final aspect of our gospel presentation makes it clear what the outcome of saving faith will be. It will be eternal life, both now and forever. Now, I want you to realize that if the person does accept, and we spent some time negatively here, <laughs> because that's probably what you're going to have the most of. But they might actually come to faith in Christ. We're hoping for that, aren't we? And so it's your joyful responsibility to tell them what they get. And what do they get? Well, they get eternal life. Well, when does the eternal life begin? Well, right now, at this very moment, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Or another good verse. I don't know if it's in your outline. No, it isn't. Oh, yeah, it is. John uh, 5.24. Well, listen. Let's stick, let's stick to the, the parallelism of whoever, whatever fanatic wrote this outline here. Okay. All right. Creator, right? Creator, king, judge, and, and then we get to father. Okay. Creator. You are a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Do you see that? So God, the creator, is at work again. But now he's making something that will last eternally. He's making a new you inside you. And that new you, that new person that you are, will live forever and ever and ever. You will survive. You will, you will outlast the mountains and the sea. You'll outlast it all. You'll outlast the Grand Canyon. Isn't that awesome? You will outlast it all. You're a new creation. And that new creation will endure forever and ever. New creation by God, the creator. Secondly, you are now going to be a joyful servant to God the King. You're being brought back into the kingdom. You're coming into the kingdom. He's your king now. In 1 John 3.24, it says, Those who obey His commands live in Him and, I, and He in them. And this is how we know that He lives in us. We know it by the Spirit He gave us. That's one good verse. I like, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. 
problem with the yoke is it takes a lot of explaining, but the yoke is kingly authority. Basically, submit your neck to my yoke. Let me be your king and I will give you life. And so basically, we are now humble servants to God or to Christ, the king. Uh, thirdly, we will be completely pardoned or we are pardoned completely by God, the judge. John 5:24 is one of my favorite verses. Put a little star next to it in your outline. That is a phenomenal verse along with uh, 2 Corinthians 5:21. I just love John 5:24. This is what Jesus said. I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. It's a good diagnostic question too. Ask a person, quote the verse, explain it, and say, have you crossed over from death to life? And realize once you cross over, you can never cross back. You are alive and you will live forever and ever. What power in heaven, earth, or under the earth can take you back from the other side? Can, can Satan send some minions across and bring you back? He cannot. He cannot. And so, completely pardoned by God the judge. And then, adopted by the Father... John 1, 12, yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Um, that's adoption. It's so beautiful. That's what we get on earth. What do we get in heaven? Well, we get eternal life forever in heaven. John eleven twenty five and 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? By the way, do you notice that final little question? Do you see that? John 11, 25 and 26. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? You have to make a personal direct appeal to the person you're talking to. Do you believe this? You've got to make them respond. You've got to make them answer. So now let's look at sheet 8 in the 15 or so minutes that we have left. Look at sheet eight and let's talk about invitation. How are you gonna, what are you going to ask them to do? You presented what they must do. They must repent and believe. You've told them what they must not do. You've given all the information. You've been quite a talker. <laughs> but now they need to say something. They need to do something. And you need to kind of ask them what they're thinking. All right? Page three of that section eight. Invitation. Key questions. At the end of our four-part outline, we have communicated everything that the hearer needs to know in order to trust Christ for salvation. Now it is time for them to speak. Our first priority is to be sure they've understood what we've discussed. We do this by asking a question like the following. Do you understand what we've been talking about? Something like that. Put that in your own words. <laughs> okay, do you get it? Do you understand? Or do you have any questions? They might not have understood some things. And probably all along they might have a chance to ask a question. But just say, do you understand what we've talked about? Let the person answer. This may be the most important part of the interchange because it is at this point that we're able to determine how much they've understood. If they haven't understood the message, they cannot believe it. They may have questions for you. They may have objections as well. Don't rush through this process. Remember that our words do not always communicate what we want them to. Do you all have the sheet? Do you know where I'm at? Sheet 8. Okay, good. Be a good listener. Be a doctor diagnosing a patient. After this time of clarifying their understanding, ask the next key question. Do you want to trust in Christ now? Do you want to trust in Christ now? You need to respond. In this moment, we're giving them a chance to declare what they will do with the gospel. In posing this question, we should keep in mind the verse we studied earlier. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Don't be shy. Don't be bashful. You're a messenger of the eternal king. You have nothing to be afraid of. Tell them the truth. God the king is commanding you to repent. Well, that's a little heavy, isn't it? Well, this is a command from the king. You're a messenger of the eternal king of the universe. He's commanding them to repent, isn't he? And, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. That's what he's commanding them to do. Ask, do you want to repent? Do you want to trust in Christ? God is commanding this person to repent. If we talk about giving an invitation, we should not forget that this is really a gracious command from the king. We are giving them an opportunity to obey the command to repent and believe. If they hesitate or seem unsure, I believe that Christian compassion would compel us to plead with them, as I already mentioned. Now, we discussed in the past the difference between a command and an invitation. What's the difference? What's the difference between a command and an invitation? 
a penalty behind a uh, command. Go ahead. An optional. It's optional. Okay. All right. I think it isn't. It, isn't it also connected to the thing itself? You know. I mean, you receive invitations to what? I mean, just think about your life. Think about the last invitation you received. Somebody tell me what was the last invitation you received? To a wedding. Okay. Graduation. Okay. Anything else? Surprise birthday party, okay? Any of you ever ha- received an invitation to a root canal? Okay? You know, uh, we, we receive invitations to happy, positive things, right? And so we tend to use the terminology invitation because it's an incredibly happy, incredibly positive thing that we're talking about here. But we should not misunderstand and think that there's no penalty to rejecting the invitation. There is. You remember the, the parable of the king who wanted to prepare a wedding banquet for his son and he sends out messengers saying the wedding banquet's ready. The oxen and fattened calf have been butchered and everything's ready. Come to the feast. That's what we would call an invitation, isn't it? I mean, that's a, a very good example of an invitation. What happened? What happened to the messenger who went out? What happened in the parable? Do you remember? Yeah, they're making excuses. I don't think they killed him, but they, they just made excuses. Somebody said, well, look, I, I bought a new yoke of ox. I want to try it out. You know, I'm busy today. I can't come and all that. And then he said, well, uh, you know, I sent out messengers to those who were invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. So go out in the street corners and compel everybody to come, good and bad, and the wedding halls filled with guests, that whole thing. But here's the thing. There is a definite penalty to resisting this invitation. It's eternal condemnation. It's going to hell. If you don't come to the wedding banquet through faith, you're going to go to hell. So there is an invitation, and it's sweet and delightful. And yes, in some sense, obviously, it can be resisted. It can be opposed. We can say no, all right? In some mysterious way, God has given us the freedom uh, to say no. But there is this idea of an invitation. Um, Now, we said in Acts 2.40, with many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them. If they seem hesitant, don't be afraid to put more words to it. Don't say, please consider. Think, is there something about this you don't understand? Something you don't believe? Something I can help you with? Uh, If you need to, then 2 Corinthians 5.11 says, Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. We should use persuasion. There's nothing wrong with that. Use persuasion. That is a godly and a right thing to do. And then I love this. In 2 Corinthians 5.20 it says, uh, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. That sounds passionate, doesn't it? We are, God is making an appeal through us. Be reconciled to God. Repent, believe. There's an, there's an appeal there. So Paul is uh, uh, an ambassador and he's seeking to persuade men. And as Christ's ambassador, he didn't merely dump information on people, but he spoke as though God were making his appeal through him. And this led him to implore people in Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. If our hearer seems hesitant or unconvinced, we need to warn, plead, persuade, and implore as though God himself were making his appeal through us. I love this um, revival sermon from George Whitfield's Marriage of Cana. I want to read this section. It's on page four of your outline. He said this, I could urge many terrors of the Lord to persuade you, but if the love of Jesus Christ will not constrain you, your case is desperate. Remember then this day I have invited all, even the worst of sinners, the most abandoned adulterers and adulteresses to the Lord Jesus. If you perish, remember you do not perish for lack of invitation. You yourselves shall stand forth at the last day and I here give you a summons to meet me at the judgment seat of Christ and to clear both my master and me. Would weeping, uh, would weeping, would my tears prevail on you? I would wish my head waters and my eyes fountains of tears that I might weep our every argument and melt you into love. Would anything I could do influence your hearts? I think I could bear to pluck out my eyes or even lay down my life for your sakes. What passion. I mean, Whitfield is one of the greatest evangelists in history. And you can see the fire, the passion, the concern, the yearning. Did he care whether people came? Yes, he cared. He cared intensely. And this is what you would call a passionate pleading. Yet as Whitfield went on to say very clearly, we must keep in mind that our role as evangelists is limited at this point. This is what Whitfield said. But such power belongeth to the Lord. I can only invite. It is he only who can work in you both to will and to do after his good pleasure. It is his property to take away the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. It is his spirit that must convince you of unbelief and of the everlasting righteousness of his dear son. Tis he alone must give you faith to apply his righteousness to your hearts. It is he alone who can give you a wedding garment and cause you to sit down and drink new wine in this kingdom. 
That is so important for us to remember that. But again, see the passion, see the pleading, see him reaching out. Now, one of the things that people talk about is the importance of counting the cost. Jesus himself mentioned that. They need to understand that their life is not necessarily going to become instantly better because they become a Christian. I remember the story, and we've told it before, about uh, the VBS uh, on one of the Caribbean islands where everyone who came forward and trusted Christ received a sweet roll. What's the problem there? It was record-setting response, okay? What's the problem? Yeah, they want the sweet roll. That's right. And I, I, I said after hearing that, it was years before that, but I said what ought to happen is all of them should be given a sweet roll and told not to eat it. And at the end, everyone who wanted to trust Christ would have the sweet roll confiscated, but they could have eternal life. I think the numbers would have gone down. But what would you think then of a 10-year-old who said, I'll give up my roll, I want Jesus? Yeah, it was a genuine commitment. And doesn't, in effect, doesn't that happen in life? Doesn't, in effect, God say, you're not going to have this and you're not going to have that and in this world you'll have trouble and things will happen to you because you're Christians that it wouldn't happen if you weren't. But in the end, you'll have eternal life. And I think that's, that's reality. So they need to count the cost. There needs to be a sense of uh, what it takes to follow Jesus. Matthew 8, uh, 19 and 20, then a teacher of the law came up to him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. I mean, that's pretty good, isn't it? I'll follow you wherever you go. What did Jesus say? That's great. That's ex- I've been looking for people like you. Is that what he said? No, he said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. I happen to be somewhat homeless tonight. <laughs> you, you still want to follow me? What, what is he saying there? Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Why does he say that to him? Don't, come, don't follow me thinking I'm going to take you to some comfortable place. That's right. Not in this world. Obviously, eternally, I'll take you to the Father's house, and that should be enough for you. 1 Corinthians 15, 19, Paul said this, if for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are to be pitied above all men. That points to the kind of life that Paul was living. All right, now let's talk about the invitation system. I don't know if I have a quote here. C.S. Lovett. Yeah, go ahead. I don't want to... Um, I believe there's two kinds of sufferings that Christians receive, every Christian receives, that non-Christians do not receive in the same way at least. And that is um, the wrestling we have with the flesh in temptation. That's a suffering in Hebrews 2. And the rejection of the world of of the life of righteousness and, and gospel preaching that we carry. And I think the level of our suffering is proportional to our obedience in each of those two struggles, the internal struggle and the external struggle. The more faithfully we obey each of those, the more we're going to wrestle and struggle. If you have no wrestling and no struggling, there is is a possibility, I think it's definitely in the internal, that you're not a Christian because you've got to be fighting the flesh. The flesh is at war with the spirit and the spirit at war with the flesh. That's Galatians 5. And if there's no war going on, then the spirit's not there and the flesh just has its way. So I believe every Christian suffers that. That's Hebrews 2, all right? Uh, We could suffer more in the area of persecution if we were more faithful. And that's the whole struggle here in America. We get to dial in our level of suffering. It's like put on the electrode zapping cap, put it on, 
And then you get to kind of, you know, and it's like, how much, how high you want to go? Well, most of us like, not really high. I don't like that. Okay, that's unpleasant. Of course, it's unpleasant. You know, in other places, you don't have much choice. If you want to just keep doing basic Christian things like meeting and having a Bible and all that, they're going to arrest you and they'll do it to you. And you don't have any choice. Here, we get to kind of dial it in. And it is human nature to reduce and minimize suffering. So that's the struggle that we have. And Rick, I feel it too. Okay, I do. But I do think that those two forms of suffering, every Christian has, everyone. That's a good good question. All right. Um, hmm. We have another 40 minutes of material to cover in negative five minutes. Um, let, let's just pick this up next time and some of the other things that I intended to do next time um, we'll talk about then. I want to talk about the sinner's prayer next time. I want to talk about, I read a booklet, and I'll, I'll tell you about this more next time, but it was a soul winner's technique manual. And what they said was at this key moment, they need to pray the sinner's prayer. Got to pray it. And it should be something like this. There was a certain recipe for the sinner's prayer. But this manual went beyond any that I'd ever read. They actually had a photo of what you're to do. What you're supposed to do is you're supposed to take your hand and put it on the man's shoulder and put a slight downward pressure on it and say in a kind of a commanding voice, let's pray. And they're going to follow whatever you do. You see? There's just, let's pray. And down, come on. All right. And then, et cetera. Okay? And, and, you know, there's just a commanding presence, and they just will do that. And then repeat after me. And then you give them phrase by phrase. I don't know if you can tell, but I have serious problems with that. Okay? Do you really think at the end of that they're going to be saved? It's like, oh, the Lord's up there. Another one won by the technique. If only we could get more people, you know, with the photos and the right hand posture and all that. We'll talk more about this next time. I want to tell you, I believe theologically, that by the time any genuine sinner's prayer has been prayed, the person was already justified. It's already happened because they're justified by faith, by hearing the message. They're already saved. The sinner's prayer is the first fruits of genuine salvation. I'm going to say something. Save me, Jesus. But by the time they're speaking the words, you know what? They're already justified. So we'll talk about that more next time. Yes, Susan, before we close. When you pray, I would like you to ask you to pray for the people, I'm thinking of one in particular, that was so open, in retrospect, I say, so open to receiving the gospel, and I did not really feel comfortable about putting it in this kind of a <clears throat> comprehensive, systematic way. I mean, this this kid was really open mm. and feels really very bad. Mm. Um, now, and so I would ask if in your closing prayer sure. you would pray for him that somebody else will do a better job. Okay. That is such a good good message. You know, what I think you need to realize is we, we never feel like we did a comprehensively like wonderful and perfect job. As a matter of fact, the best evangelistic jobs I've ever done, they never seem to accept. And the ones that do accept, I feel like I botched it left and right. And I think he does that to just keep us humble and realize it really isn't about the technique. But uh, I will pray for that. Um, realize this statement also that Jesus makes in John 4. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their work. So maybe you do somebody's hard work. Somebody else gets the joy of reaping them. So keep that in mind. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the time we've had to study tonight. Thank you for the things we covered. God, I pray that this whole room full of people here that's listening tonight, all of us, that we would have a sense of the joy of the ministry of reconciliation, that we would, each one of us, share the gospel this week with an unbeliever. I just pray, pray for that, Lord. I pray that short time or long, that we would, whether we would get to every sub-point or not, um, whatever it takes, that we would be able to go through God, man, Christ response with somebody and bring them to a point where they need to uh, trust in Christ and the issues are made clear. And then, Lord, we ask, and I ask together with Susan, that you would, you would give us the right words at that moment to bring them to that point of decision, but the rest is up to you, Lord. And I pray that you would move in their hearts through the power of the Spirit and bring people to Christ. Lord, I'm not satisfied in any way, shape, or form with how many people uh, we're seeing converted as a result of our witness. Not satisfied with the number of baptisms that we see, Lord. They're really way too few. We can go months and months and months in between baptisms. And Lord, it's just not right. We're surrounded by tens of thousands of people, many of whom do not know you as Lord and Savior. Help us to be faithful. And I join Susan in praying for all of those that we're concerned about where we felt we had a chance and didn't make the most of it. Lord, I pray that you would come alongside those people that we have in mind, This specifically this young boy, it seems like. I think of some other people. Perhaps we're thinking of relatives or friends that we've not done a good job with. Father, I pray that you would come up behind us and bring some other faithful servants who will finish the job. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.